0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network with the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. Today we'll be talking with Adrian Boaz about his new book, The Crusader World. Professor Boaz is a lecturer in archaeology and history of the Crusader period at the University of Haifa, Israel. He's also the current president of the Society for the Study of the Crusades and the Latin East. Professor Boas has published several books on the archaeology of the Crusader period, most recently the award-winning Montfort, Early History and Recent Studies of the Principal Fortress of the Teutonic Order in the Latin East. Adrian Boas, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm pleasure to be here. Before we begin, tell us a little bit about yourself. What drew you to your field of study?
1: Well, um, I... Actually, I grew up in Australia, so uh, rather distant from, from Crusader studies, and uh, um, I didn't really become interested in the topic until uh, I began my university studies, which was fairly late in my early 30s. Uh, prior to that, I'd worked in other fields. I'd been a graphic artist for a number of years. Uh, but I had an interest as a child even in um, the medieval period, from books I'd read, and this interest remained through my adulthood. So when I came to university, it had been something that I had thought about, although at that specific time, my chief interest had been in in more modern history and European history, the beginning of the 20th century. But uh, I studied studied archaeology and uh, history at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and i was fortunate enough to be able to study under professor joshua Prava, who was at the end of his uh, academic career then and i uh, for about 3 3 or 4 years i took classes with him and he was a wonderful scholar and he was the founder of crusader studies in israel and a, a world renowned scholar of the crusader period and he his uh, enthusiasm and and the fascination that he managed to convey to his students uh, was basically what led me into the path of crusader studies and the archaeology was, was uh, I'd always been interested in, in the tangible history and so uh, archaeology was, uh, came fairly naturally to me once I, was, uh, in the, when, once I began to study and uh, th- um, I, at the time there were no people involved in crusader archaeology as a full-time a research topic and so uh, in Israel at least and so um, I thought this would be a good idea to to combine crusader studies with archaeology and to do something that hadn't been done in in Israel on a on a to a large degree so so this was basically uh, the way I came into this field
0: good teachers who love their field are incredibly impactful in our lives, aren't they?
1: Indeed, and I was also fortunate enough to be uh, advised by Professor Prava uh, to continue my studies under a student, former student of his, uh, Professor Benjamin Kedar, who is one of the most important uh, people in the field of Crusader history, and uh, and so and also uh, very enthusiastic about the type of research I was doing, and uh, and so certainly I, I agree entirely that. Uh, the, the quality of our teachers has a great deal to do with, with the direction we go in and how successful we are in that field.
0: Absolutely. Well, for listeners who are not yet steeped in the Crusader world, set us up with some background. When, where, and why did the Crusades begin?
1: Well, the first Crusade, which began the period that we call the Crusader period, was uh, took place um, following a uh, called by the Pope uh, Urban II in 1095 um, to uh, restore, to Christian control the holy places that had um, been under uh, the control of Islam for, for many centuries. And, and there was a lot of background to this. There were a lot of different reasons why uh, the Pope's call was so successful, but uh, uh, which I wouldn't have time to go into obviously here. But uh, a number of reasons, uh, political reasons and social reasons and economic reasons behind this. But in any case, the the call of the Pope uh, led to um, the First Crusade, which uh, um, reached Jerusalem in 1099, conquered the city and established the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem. And uh, then for the next 200 years, um, the Holy Land, Assyria, uh, a fairly extensive area from what's today southern Turkey down to uh, the Sinai uh, was under Frankish control, not not consistently, but uh, largely under Frankish control for close to 200, 200 years and, and also subsequently Cyprus as well. So um, uh, putting it very briefly, this is the period we refer to as the Crusader period and uh, within this period there are ups and downs obviously the the big um uh, event in the middle of the um of this period is the battle of hatin which nearly led to the collapse of the kingdom and uh, um so so you have a number of periods of 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 development in different aspects of of uh, society of urban life of of castle building of the art of all different aspects that are the type of topics that I'm studying,
0: um,
1: and uh, uh, so it's quite a fascinating period with a lot of, of uh, different aspects to it that, uh, that can be what, studied.
0: What about it is fascinating to you?
1: Well, practically everything, I think. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, my own personal interest is in uh, material culture, in the. In the changes that were made by Crusader society, or as we say, Frankish society, in adapting themselves to, to a new situation, so we have a European society that's come and uh, left its its uh, its former way of life and settled in a, in a region which is very, quite different and uh, with different uh, a different culture and with different threats and with different. Uh, um, um, elements of life that have to be dealt with on a daily basis. And, and the reaction to, this, to these changes and the way the Frankish society adapted, adopting things from what they saw around them, bringing things with them from the West and, and changing them and evolving them, these are the things that fascinate me the most. I think this aspect of, of how the society has moved from one place to another and how it adapts and, and, and survives.
0: In some parts of the world, in popular culture, the word crusades conjures up images of knights in shining armor, codes of chivalry, and the like. For Muslims and Jews, on the other hand, the crusades are remembered as a time of brutality, of uh, wanton murder of civilians, infidels under the banner of the church, kind of like uh, Christian ISIS-style jihad. And until the Nazi Holocaust in the 20th century, the worst persecutions of European Jews were inflicted by the Crusaders. Uh, The Rhineland massacres of 1096 are particularly notorious uh, as brutality marked the travel of the Crusaders on their way to the Holy Land. Is there a scholarly concept of the time period that's expansive enough to include both images of the time?
1: Uh, Is there a... I'm not quite sure I follow the question. Is there
0: a... I'm wondering if there's a way of talking about the Crusader period that includes the productive, benign, cultural aspects of life, uh, as well as the brutal, hostile, uh, aggressive... Aspect, well
1: yeah i mean i mean obviously scholars have different outlooks and deal with different aspects of i mean both of these aspects are there there's obviously you know warfare is very central to the crusades and to and not just to the crusades themselves but to the to life in the latin east it's con, it's a continual thing that's going on and there's a tremendous amount of brutality on both sides um and uh, so obviously these are uh, areas of interest that have uh, uh, weight and importance and are studied by scholars who for for example in my field deal with uh, warfare or with uh, fortifications and things like this or even the, the social aspects of, of living in a in a society under threat uh, obviously this this is uh, uh, these are topics that are, are researched by a lot of people and are very central to the topic of the crusader period At the same time, there is a society which has, um, as I say, uh, has resettled in a different region and is undergoing aspects of change in order to adapt to that region. And my own uh, interest is perhaps more to that side of the picture, um, to how people adapted and, and how they evolved their daily life. And, and I've always had a, a fascination, my, my PhD was on domestic life and, and houses. And so uh, my own personal outlook is, well, I mean, I, I see both sides of the picture. And I think that both of these aspects of Crusader, of the Crusader uh, existence is, are, are important and central, but they're both important. And so also daily life and, and what people ate and what they wore and how they prayed and and how they painted their walls and whatever else you know th- all these are is, are important as well. So yeah, there's there's a dialogue for both of these aspects of the topic.
0: Yes, uh, your chapter is is refreshing in its focus on domestic life in in, in a historical period generally categorized characterized by battlefields and church issues. So tell us what have uh, archaeological findings in the Israeli city of Acre taught us about the daily life in that uh, Crusader urban center?
1: Well, Acre certainly a great deal. Um, uh, Well, the history of Acre is um, is central to understanding the Latin East, and certainly the aspects that I'm that I have dealt with uh, on domestic life and so forth, Uh, but not just um, the life, daily life, but also the whole um, uh, economic survival of the kingdom and the development of, of uh, commerce uh, in, in, the, in the eastern Mediterranean and much more than that. Um, and the importance of Acre relates to largely, uh, to us today as scholars, uh, studying the city and studying the period, it relates to how it was destroyed, in fact, and how it, uh, how it uh, ended, because unlike Jerusalem, which uh, uh, in 1244 was conquered the last time, it, it fell once in 1187 after the Battle of Hattin to Salahaddin Saladin, but it fell again. It was recovered by the Franks for a short period and fell finally in 1244. But the city was not destroyed. People continued to live in it. Uh, the Franks were kicked out, but there were still Christians and there were Jews and there were Muslims, obviously. And the city survived and the houses survived and over time deteriorated, were rebuilt. And, and uh, so um, it's quite different from what happened in Acre because what happened in Acre was that in 1291, the Mamluks conquered the city and their policy was to destroy whatever they conquered so that there would be nowhere that the Franks could come back to, that a new crusade could reconquer and reuse. So um, the city was dismantled uh, very thoroughly and left as a pile of ruins. Uh, but it was exactly this destruction which preserved the city for us today because the ground stories of the lower the basements and the lower parts of the buildings were buried under the rubble. And when the uh, city of Akko, the, uh, the city that we know today, was resettled, in the late 18th century, and and developed in the 19th century, and was fortified and and rebuilt, uh, and the and the port was was reestablished. Uh, the buildings were built on the ruins; they weren't cleared away. So whatever had survived from the destruction of 1291 was preserved almost intact underneath the city. And so we have basically an underground city. It's rather like Pompeii, a Medi- uh, Middle Eastern Pompeii, if you like. And so. As archaeologists study it and and get down into those lower parts, and they uncover covered streets, uh, intact stories of houses, uh, buildings, inst- installations, and so forth, a whole world of medieval life is being uncovered. And and I mean, anyone who's visited Arco today and has seen the the work carried out by the Israel Antiquities Authority and the uh, um, um, the uh, um, other institutions involved in developing Acre, um, I f- can see how how enormous the importance of Acre is in understanding Crusader society. It's perhaps the best preserved Crusader city in, in, in existence anywhere.
0: So, uh, tell us about what do we know about the basics of sanitation, water use, health, and how people earned a living.
1: Well, a great deal, uh, and we're constantly learning more and more. Um, As I say, my PhD, which I did under Professor Kedah and which I subsequently published in a book called um, Domestic Settings, deals with houses, basically, um, and acres full of houses. There are a lot of other houses in the country, in in villages and in uh, uh, other towns, uh, but particularly in Acre. And, uh, and and in these houses we find preserved often um, both the material culture which relates to daily life in the house if it's the pottery they use to eat from or if it's the coins they use or fragments of clothing and, and other objects relating to daily activities um, but also we have institutions that relate to um, urban life in general for example... Uh, uh, not just in Acre, we have uh, we have the ports, we have the hospitals, we have sewage systems, we have water supplies, we have cemeteries, um, and obviously, you know, ruins that have remained uh, uh, over several hundred years. We don't have everything we have, but we have a great deal of information that we can work on, and we're constantly building on this and expanding our understanding of how um, how life. Um, was carried out in these cities. So, for example, the, the wonderful work that's been done on the hospital in Jerusalem, um, the more and more knowledge on, on the sewerage systems and on the water supplies in the different cities and in villages as well, not not just in the cities. I, I had the opportunity of excavating a crusader village, uh, a, a, a European-style village built by Frankish settlers, probably... On behalf of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, in what's today the suburb of, of Ramot in Jerusalem, and uh, um, from an examination of the these houses, you could learn about how people lived, the conditions of their houses, uh, the type of activities they were involved in in agriculture and in uh, um, in manufacture of, of wine and oil and other um, agricultural produce, and and uh, also aspects of the administration of the village. So, so there's a whole range of things that we can learn from archaeological study in cities and in towns that relate to daily life. Uh,
0: um, Since you mentioned Jerusalem, I'm I'm curious about how uh, how they handled that is the Crusaders handled a challenge that jerusalem still faces which is the seasonal crowds of pilgrims uh, it's uh, it, it's a challenge today what was it like then did they have any particular way of managing it
1: indeed um, yes obviously pilgrimage which was medieval tourism if you like was central to um to many aspects of life in the latin east and i think uh, and this is the outlook I took when I, I wrote a book on Jerusalem. Jerusalem in the time of the Crusades, and and my uh, understanding f- from examining the, the aspect of pilgrimage in in Jerusalem, and it's not just in Jerusalem, but it obviously it centres on Jerusalem, is that it was it was vital. It was what turned the city from basically a, a ghost town at the beginning of the 12th century into a vibrant and vital and lively city in, by the middle of the years of the century and the reason for this is that when jerusalem was conquered in 1099 uh, the muslim and jewish population were either slaughtered or kicked out of the city and very few of the christians remained so the city was empty and and there were various things done to to revive the city but perhaps more than anything else i mean for example that. People from other areas were brought in and settled in the town. But more than anything else, it was pilgrimage and all the things around pilgrimage that enabled the city to revive. um, For example, the the churches were rebuilt. Um, The conditions for pilgrims were improved by setting up um, hostels, hospitals, hospitals. market selling cooked food for the pilgrims visiting. In the centre of Jerusalem there was a, a street called the Street of Bad Cooking which basically meant junk food so so this was a street selling food specifically for pilgrims coming to the city industries that have produced uh, objects that, that pilgrims would purchase um, uh, so a whole range of things making pilgrimage attractive and Together with this, and this is most important, the establishment in Jerusalem in the beginning of the 12th century of the military orders, first the Templars and the Hospitallers and, and uh, later on uh, other military orders, and the, these, these organisations, among other things that they did, which were very important, um, defended the roads, so made pilgrimage safer, and this was critical in the early years of the kingdom when the roads were very dangerous, and also provided within the cities um, establishments that dealt with all the needs of pilgrims, and not least hospitals of course, but but many other things as well. and um, and so the the efforts made to um, make the cities attractive and particularly Jerusalem attractive by a tremendous amount of building, and the establishment of these different uh, installations, together with the making pilgrimage safer um and of course at the ports making uh you know uh, providing the needs of pilgrims arriving at the ports and and travel uh up to the city and so forth all of these came together to make pilgrimage to to give a tremendous boost to pilgrimage and the result of this was you know, people settling in the city to to um, look after the pilgrims needs and to to make money from it as well Um, So, so Jerusalem was basically resettled largely through this and you have waves of pilgrims coming in, particularly in the holy uh, during the the festivals, but, but also um, during the travel seasons, there were two seasons a year when uh, um, ships came to the ports of the holy land and then waves of pilgrims would come up to Jerusalem and to other holy cities. So uh, definitely this is a very central aspect to life in the Latin East and particularly in in uh, the holy cities, and particularly in Jerusalem, uh, pilgrimage is, is very very central. And one of the things uh, you, you mentioned about how the um, how how the Franks um, um, provided or made for this these big waves, how how they managed this. One of the things you you can see this in very um, clearly is in the rebuilding of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, um, which had been largely destroyed at the beginning of the 11th century by the Muslims. And uh, the Franks rebuilt it. Uh, and obviously this was a matter of prestige and a matter of religious importance. But they chose a design which was ideal for large numbers of pilgrims arriving at the church. It, it was a sort of a circular movement through the church from one point to another um, without, um, without any sort of blockage of uh, uh, it can still be. You can still get the effect of this today. The design was a, a European design of a um, what's known as a Romanesque pilgrim church, where you can you enter one side and you come out the other, but you have all these different locations where you can pray. So, so even in in the architecture, you can see how this this the Frankish society was um, taking into account the, the expectation and the reality of large waves of pilgrims coming into the city and, and how to deal with it.
0: You mentioned the Templars. Uh, they were an example of the um, military communities of monastic rule. Uh, were they not? This was uh, an invention of creator, Crusader society?
1: Yes, the the Templars, the Knights of the Temple, were the first military order Um uh, it was a small group of of knights who'd probably come during the first Crusade and settled in Jerusalem. And around the year uh, eleven nineteen, they established this um, organization where they combined uh, uh, military activities as knights with a monastic lifestyle. And the advantage of this is that the, the, in a monastery, life is very Neatly organized into boxes between uh, hours of prayer, and there's six different hours of prayer. And in between, you had different activities. And in a normal monastery, these would be relating to different activities related to life in the monastery, or perhaps agriculture, or other things like that. In a military order, they introduced into these spaces between the, the prayers um, activities relating to military. Uh, needs, such as looking after equipment, uh, practice, military practice, and so forth. And so the result of this was an organization of knights who had a very organized lifestyle, who were living uh, in a system where they were daily um, carrying out uh, exercises and looking after equipment. And and in addition to this very neat organization, which made for very... Um, disciplined and and well-prepared soldiers, um, uh, these organizations received a tremendous amount of wealth from donations given mainly in the West, Um, and this wealth was pumped into these organizations so they could build castles and bigger and bigger castles and they could provide the best equipment. And and the end result is that you have soldiers who are extremely well-prepared and also Um, have the very best and up-to-date equipment and are ready for for fighting. And and that's why the Templars in the first place and later on the Hospitallers and the Teutonic orders and other military orders were the best fighters. They they were the best elements, the strongest in the armies because they were so well-prepared and so well-equipped.
0: And did they think of themselves or did the rest of society think of them as holy warriors?
1: well i suppose they did i mean they the because they're combining these two elements um they are obviously warriors and they're also consistently uh, um, involved in that in, in their daily routine they have six different periods of prayer so obviously there are these aspects that doesn't mean that they're all they're all these saintly people you know they they're warriors and they're quite aggressive and they're often they're very barbaric in their behavior but yes i suppose um these organizations as a whole were regarded as holy warriors, if you like.
0: Tell us a little more about uh, what archaeology informs us about the interior household life of the ordinary people. What did they eat? How did they cook? Tell us about the women's lives. to Give us a picture of the ordinary people in contrast to the Templars. Uh, just the regular folks who resettled here.
1: Yes. Well, um, the we, as I say, we have a, a lot of information as res- coming through from archaeological research on what people wore and what they eat and how they cooked and how they the different industries they were involved in or activities in the household that they were involved in. Um, there are also a lot of gaps in this information. There are a lot of things that don't survive. The years and, uh, and so we have to sort of fill in from what we can understand from the archaeological record combined with what evidence we have in written sources. And fortunately, uh, one of the wonderful things of dealing with a, a late period of history like the Crusader period, comparatively late to what a lot of other archaeologists in the country are dealing with, is that we have a tremendous amount of, of written information as well and in either in texts written by his uh, chronic, chroniclers or by pilgrims or by others and this even a pilgrim who comes to the latin east and visits jerusalem he's not only going to the church he's going through the markets and he's seeing daily life in the city and, he, and not always but quite often you get a lot of information from these sources as well and even from uh, documents in archives uh, that For example, when I wrote my book on the domestic uh, life and houses, um, I was able to take information from um, written sources about how um, uh, about pollution, about crowding in the cities, about uh, the cost of housing, the rental and purchase costs of houses in Acre, for example. Um, So there's a lot of written information as well in archaeological information there are areas where we have a lot more information and there are areas where we have a lot less so for example cooking will we we have the ceramic vessels that we use for cooking we know that in a Frankish household just as in other medieval households in the region people cooked their meals in uh, cooking uh, in ceramic cooking pots glazed with a lead glaze so they were also slowly poisoning themselves but they were not aware of the fact Um um, we have uh, today. There are ways also of tracing material that's preserved in the vessel so that you might get an idea of what they were actually cooking. And, for example, in my excavations in a, albeit a castle, not in a in a house context, but in the Montfort Castle, we get a, a lot of of bones and and uh, um, veget- uh, 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 of um, Surviving, uh, say seeds and things like that, that, that give us evidence about the actual meals they were having. Um, um, we are able sometimes to observe things like, and this, there's a chapter in the book that the, um, that uh, the Crusader World uh, by a, a um, former MD uh, um, turned turned uh, biological anthropologist. Piers Mitchell, about the diseases that people have often resulting from what they were eating. So, for example, to, to anal- analyzing uh, uh, waste taken from latrines and cesspits, he was able to show what types of tapeworms they were or ringworms or roundworms or whatever they were suffering from. And these related to how they cook their meals, for example. So so they're all different aspects of how we can... Uh, um, recover the daily life through examining different types of materials there are there are as I say some things that we're less informed on from the archaeological record for example clothing um, I mean to get a vague idea of what clothing is like in uh, in illuminations in manuscripts and there are fragments of metal pieces from buckles and things like that from clothing but there's very little in the way of actual clothing that survives um, We did find, there was a a shoe and a sandal found in in Montfort Castle, uh, not by our excavation, but earlier on, um, but very few pieces of actual clothing. So that's an an area where we have a little bit less information, for
0: example. Well, um, we're speaking together today uh, under conditions of uh, social distance and nearly locked down because of the coronavirus so uh, i'm wondering what we know about the leisure activities uh, that the crusaders enjoyed
1: Mm, yes well uh, we do have some information on that Uh, uh, largely from um, not so much from private houses more from institutions like uh, monasteries and military order castles uh, where we often find evidence of games that have been played, uh, board games, a game names, uh, nine Man's morris, board
0: games. Example. Wow! Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: and um, and dice and game pieces. For example, so we know people were doing that. You also get things like, uh, for example, graffiti on walls, people doodling, you know, passing their time, uh, scribbling on the walls and things like that. So there are these little bits of evidence about. Uh, Uh, leisure activities. Another area that uh, is particularly interesting regarding leisure is the use of the bathhouse, which uh, was adopted by um, the European settlers on a much larger scale, perhaps, than they had used bathhouses in Europe. And it became a very central uh, element in daily life. And from some sources, for example, Muslim sources describing Franks in the bathhouse, and from Frankish sources as well. We find that they are um, making use of bathhouses and staying there overnight, even and sometimes having their meals in bathhouses. So bathing was a another big leisure activity that was uh, taken on by the Frankish settlers.
0: Um, well, that's really interesting. Uh, when and how did the Crusader movement come to an end?
1: Well. In, if we're talking about the Syrian states, uh, the uh, uh, the Principality of Antioch and the, the Tripoli and the Kingdom of Jerusalem, um, it came to an end at the end of the 13th century. And in Cyprus, uh, uh, it continues on for some time. Um, the, uh, the fall of the Kingdom of Jerusalem, well, it basically begins earlier on, the, the big... Uh, beginning of the descent, if you like, is the Battle of Hattin in 1187 when Saladin uh, um, has united the Arab countries around the kingdom and around the Crusader States and he eventually um, gets them to come face-to-face in a, in a field battle at the Horns of Hattin in the Eastern Galilee and defeats virtually the entire Frankish army and or Crusader army and as a result of this the kingdom collapses uh, very rapidly within a few months. Um, only the town of Tyre, the coastal town of Tyre, remaining in Frankish hands. And then there's a third crusade and, and the coast has recovered. And then there's, uh, there are various agreements that return briefly return Jerusalem to the uh, to Christian rule and the Galilee. But uh, the decline really begins at, at Hatin which is... A watershed in in Crusader history. Um, So there are ups and downs after that. The big decline comes in the 1260s with the rise of the uh, the new dynasty in Egypt, the Mamluks, and um, the invasion by their Sultan Baibars, who is the person who um, introduces this, uh, what I mentioned before, this system of conquering and destroying. Crusader castles, Crusader towns, and he comes up the coast and destroys uh, places like Alsouf and Acre, and he attacks the castle I work on at Montfort, and he goes up north and, and takes other castles. And, and this is the beginning of the collapse, and, and it just builds up from that point on. So through the later half of the 13th century, you have this, the Crusader uh, settlement shrinking more and more towards Acre and a few coastal towns, until twelve ninety one, May twelve ninety one, when uh, Acre falls, and that's basically the end. They hang on for until August, and the last Franks depart from the kingdom at Atlit in August twelve ninety
0: one. And what would you say were some ways the Crusader movement impacted the future?
1: Well, there are ways in, in it impacted the future. Um, it had an influence on a lot of different things, uh, um, um, industries and various industries. Um, I think perhaps the most illustrative one is the, is something that's very much with it today, uh, not, to, not a favorable thing perhaps, although it's still viewed by many people as such, and that's the use of sugar because sugar was an industry which, uh, manufacture of sugar existed before the Crusades, but it was the Crusades and within the Crusader Kingdom of Jerusalem that the refining of sugar became an organized industry and an important export product. And the military orders were largely involved in this, and and, uh, they developed a way of refining sugar and they regarded it as a very healthy uh, article of That that had great benefits today. It's regarded by some people as one of the most dangerous drugs to humanity, Um, and so so sugar is very much with us today. And it's largely because of what happened in the Latin Kingdom of Jerusalem in the 12th century. Um, Obviously, later on, it went through all sorts of other uh, went to other places and moved on and developed. But but that's where it really began as an industry. So so that's one example. It's a rather
0: it's, it's, it's an amusing one, amusing when, one indeed. And <laughs> uh, you think of how much it's blamed on sugar today. Yes. Yeah.
1: But uh, I mean, obviously there are other things. But a lot of the things that were important at the time are no longer important to us. For example, castle building obviously is no longer something. Yeah, you know, I mean, it was very central at the time, but it's not something that affects uh, our life today in any way. But yes, not like sugar.
0: sugar. We love our sugar. Mm. Yeah. So, in all your years of um, exploring archaeologically and studying historically, are there any particular moments that stand out to you where a discovery or an insight just moved you more than other times?
1: Well... Almost every season of excavation, I've been working at Montfort Castle since two thousand and six, and excavating since two thousand and eleven. And we've had ten ex- archaeological see- uh, excavation seasons. Uh, unfortunately, this year we're going to it looks like we're going to have to put it off because of the current crisis. But um, um, almost every season has been um, has produced a remarkable find or a remar- or evidence for a, for something very dramatic in our understanding of the castle. Um, and throughout my career, obviously, you know, I've worked in different castles. I worked in uh, uh, a castle in the upper Jordan Valley, uh, Vadum Yakov uh, or Shastelay at geshev Yakov, a remarkable uh, castle with an extraordinary history. Um, and there are always finds that are amazing and uh, moving i think for me if i look back on all my career the the find, the archaeological find that was perhaps most moving for me emotionally was not to do with the crusades but it was when i was working on the uh, site the site of door Tantura on the coast um and i was directing a, a field uh, uh, in, in the excavations and we came across a Step, I think it was a stone step, and there was a brace uh, or a, a um, necklace lying there on the step as if somebody had placed it there a thousand years, two thousand years, or three thousand years ago. I don't remember the details now, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the metal of the bracelet or the, the necklace had completely um, deteriorated, but the, the beads were there just laid as they'd been placed on the step. So so that was like a very um, touching and, and something that really gave you as I say, a tangible sense of history. And obviously, in, you know, when we find a coin, when we're dusting and we find something uh, that somebody's put and it's exactly where it was placed in, in the case of Crusader sites 800 or 900 years ago, it's it's very moving and very emotional. But it's not always these things that are important. Sometimes it's, some, it's something very banal, something very minor that has a dramatic importance to understanding of a site. Um, but there are just so many different things that have, that I found interesting and fascinating and important
0: through my finding year. that bracelet must have been thrilling. Yeah, it it was very. I just imagine the person putting it, the woman putting it down exactly.
1: No. Yeah. Oh. and thinking about the circumstances why it remained there. Yeah.
0: Right, <laughs> it's like the beginning page it's... of a novel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Adrian, I've taken up a lot of your time, and I appreciate it. My pleasure. Before you go, though, tell us what you're working on now.
1: Well, I'm at the end of my career, as a, not at the end of my career, perhaps, but at the end of my academic career. I'm, I'm now on a half sabbatical, and I retire at the end of this year. Um Oh, congratulations! <laughs> Thank you. Um, not that I won't miss teaching because I thoroughly enjoyed teaching, and I've had the good fortune of having a, a lot of wonderful students, many of whom are now involved in Crusader archaeology as well. Um, but um, what I want to do now, um, at least in the immediate future, is to do something to bring um, the pub the, the to, to the for the general public to get the public here in israel for example where it's often the case that people know either know nothing or don't really care or find crusader history something they don't want to deal with Um, and i want to change these attitudes but also in general to reach a much broader public than i have as an academic where i've I've written books but they're they're generally read by academics and or, or by students and not by a much broader public so I have in mind a book uh, which I've been working on for the past particularly two years, but just uh, on the side, and now I will have more time to deal with it, on the relationship between the Crusaders and the Crusader settlers, but at the beginning of the Crusader period, and the Italian merchant fleets, and how these two um, very different um, groups got together and worked in unison as a very very important alliance in, in which enabled the conquering of the coast and the survival the subsequent survival and development of the Crusader states but also um, on the Italian side uh, gave them a much stronger hold on on relationships on commercial relationships between the east and the west and so I think um, this Alliance between the Crusaders and the Italians uh, would eventually have a very strong impact on Europe, and much more so than some scholars have said in the past. And so, this is a book that I want to write as a a trade book, as a book for a general public rather than as an uh, academic book. And in order to do this, and as is required today when you're writing the the book for trade, um, and one has to set up a, a what's known as an author's platform or some sort of in, in, in presence in the media or in the uh, internet and so forth so I've been writing a post for the, uh, a blog for the past uh, year and a half uh, I've written over two hundred um, posts on aspects of the Crusades which I interweave with modern uh, um, things in the news today, for example, the coronavirus, if you like, or don't like, uh, or, or, or aspects of uh, personal things in my life, in my childhood, um, and a bit of humour to try and reach a broader audience, but always with this uh, section on or how it relates to the past and to the crusader past specifically. So, so often finding these, the, the way these two things fit together, you know, how the past relates to the present and so forth. And uh, I thoroughly enjoy doing it, and I write two posts a week, generally. Um, so that's basically what I'm working on now, along with, uh, obviously, the, the excavations that are going to be going on, hopefully, after the uh, uh, present uh, crisis is overcome, um, and my work in the Society of the Study of the Crusades in the Latin East, and, and various other work with, with students, certainly continue to work with PhD students,
0: Um, Well, that sounds like a great project, and uh, this podcast will be happy to find a home on your blog, because it fits right in with your goal of uh, uh, spreading the word to people who are not necessarily specialists in the field. Uh, Adrian, I want to thank you for taking the time and being on the show today, and thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikoff. Thank you very much. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.